Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Jonathan Safran Foer i samtal med Mats Almegård. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Hello everyone. Thank you Ingemar for that introduction and especially hello and a warm welcome to you Jonathan. I'm very honored to be here tonight to talk about your latest novel with you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. When I was walking here, not actually walking here, I was walking back to the hotel. Earlier, I ran into somebody on the street who I didn't know who said, uh, "Oh, I'm coming to your reading tonight." said, thank you very much. It's great. And um, she said, you know, Patti Smith is also playing tonight. <laughs> And I said, that's great. I'm glad that you're coming. She said, also, the tickets to Patti Smith are very cheap. So it's... <laughs> And what I didn't say to her is, I am coming here tonight. And there's um, a once-in-a-lifetime solar eclipse moving across the United States. In fact, we just watched it backstage. Yeah on a phone which is not exactly and precisely like seeing it in real life, but it was a, a very special cosmic event. But all of which is to say, I'm very happy to have <laughs> made the choice to be here. I'm glad that you are, although you have a lot of things that look very interesting as well then. Have you ever seen Patti Smith live? I have, yeah. Uh, I have seen her in life. I've never seen her perform live. We've been at book festivals. And okay. So you're not she, really sure what you're missing tonight? Well, she's a, a really wonderful writer. Mm. A, a great, great writer, in fact. Um, her music, I only actually know one or two songs. I, I know her writing much, much better than I know her music. Okay. As I said, we're here to talk about your latest novel called, uh, called Here I Am, Här är jag, uh, Norstads in Swedish. Um, it's a book about many things, uh, of course. It's it's thick to start with, so it can contain a lot of things, but it also has a lot of themes and uh, draws on things like diaspora, family, hope, home, earthquake, war, um, divorce, online gaming, although the character wouldn't say that it is online gaming, so, but something else that we can talk about later. And it's also a novel about loss. And I hope we can be able to touch some of these things tonight. We have about an hour to do that. And you will also read some parts of the novel. But I think mostly this is a book about a divorce. For me, that stands out like one of the biggest themes. And uh, it's a divorce between uh, Jacob and Julia Bloch. What do you say, Bloch? Bloch, yeah, Bloch. Either, either way. Okay. And when we first encounter them, they sit in the Adas Israel School at uh, the office of Rabbi Singer. And their son, Sam, is waiting outside in the hall. What is going on there? Um, I have so much to say about what you just said. First of all, you know, thick is a funny word in English because it often means um, stupid. Ah, sorry. No, but uh, I, 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 I meant. I didn't assume that was big. what you meant, but it was <laughs> still funny. Like, um, 
yeah. It's I was just long thinking, could be a word. Also. Basically, thick is applied almost exclusively in like colloquial English right now to either things that are stupid or to penises. That that's the, okay. the only way the word is used. <laughs> you would say it's a tall book or a wide book or a long book. But anyway. Um, <laughs> And also, I was thinking, you said the main theme is divorce. And I don't, it's funny because divorce is a theme, but it's also specifically an action. So two people can get divorced, and that's an action, but divorce has a kind of cleaving of two things, a separation. Um, and there's a part in the book where I talk about words that also mean they're opposite. And to cleave is an example. To cleave can mean to cling to or can mean to separate from, like cleavage. Um, and that theme of separating from something that you also cling to, I think really does run through the book and that's how I think about the book. I don't think about it as a book about actions, even though there are some very big actions in the book, like the literal divorce. Or later in the book, there's an earthquake that precipitates, in the Middle East, that precipitates a war that becomes so extreme that the Prime Minister of Israel asks Jews from around the world to come to fight. So there are, there are such big actions and they're described you know, on the back of the book just like they are with every book. But I don't think about it that way. I think of, that, of those things, of the actions, just as frankly I think about the characters as being a kind of necessary um, almost expense in order to get to the thing that I really do care about, which isn't dependent on when a book takes place or where it takes place or the socioeconomic background of the characters or the color of their skin or religion, but themes. And that theme of divorce um, is something that runs through the Bible. It runs through, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the relationship of um, the knowledge of good and evil, or the, the, in fact, all of creation in the first few sentences of Genesis is about separation, separating night from day, separating water from water from land, separating animal from beast. To, just simply to make something is to divorce things, and, and so on and so forth through Genesis. And the Odyssey is about different kinds of divorce, like man from homeland or man from family or child from adulthood, parent from child. Um, so it's a, an entirely universal theme, maybe even the universal theme. And you know, as I was saying about words that can mean they're opposite, like the opposite of a divorce is a homecoming. And that to me is, in a way, the, the ultimate theme of the book is, and the ultimate theme, maybe, maybe it's a way to describe every book that's ever been written. Is, it's hard to think of an exception, and if you can think of one, you should tell me. <laughs> but a desire of, a, of someone to come home. Hmm. You, know, you can very broadly define what home is. In some cases, it's literally a home, like in the Odyssey. In some cases, it has something more to do with identity, I think, as it does in this book. Mm -hmm. For sure. But there is, I mean, as you say, home is uh, such a basic uh, quality of a novel, but it's also very important, I think, 
the way you use home in this particular novel as the home on Newark Street, I think, uh, they live, and also the home of the Jews in Israel and the connection between the American Jews and the Israeli Jews and what responsibilities there is between shown in the relationship between uh, Jacob and his cousin who comes to America and asks him to what, what you give to Israel, what, what is your, yeah, wh how do you contrib contribute to Israel? Mm. And Jacob hasn't got a clear answer to that and it's also questionable, is, is Israel his second home, would you say? It's funny you should mention Newark Street because I don't know why I decided to, Newark, my, my older brother lives on Newark Street. Mm -hmm. And um, when he read the galley of the book, the manuscript, he said, oh, this address is so close to mine. Do you have to do that? And then when the book was copy edited by the publisher, they ask, they double check all the facts and the copy editor said, you know there's no such address on Newark Street. And I thought those, the combination of those two responses was so funny. The, the things that you have to navigate as a fiction writer, mm -hmm. like you want it to be in some way, not literally, maybe not in a sort of journalistic or biographical way, but you want it to be close to life. You know, the greatest blurb I've ever read for any book was um, the writer Paul West wrote about 100 Years of Solitude. Um, this book pushes against life itself. You know, it, it was so close to life that it was actually pressing up against it. And so in order to get close to life, you, you don't have to use real addresses and you don't have to use names and you don't have to write um, in a way that the events in the book correspond to events out in the real world. But there is something that you do have to do, you know, to regularly make choices to, I think, write with a kind of um, authenticity and a kind of honesty that risks sometimes offending people. I've actually never had that experience. I've never had anybody that I know read anything that I've written and say, hey, that's me. The closest I've ever come is what I just described with my brother, which is pretty benign. It was almost a joke more than anything else. But I do know the feeling very, very well of writing things that feel risky in their um, honesty. You know, I have the experience all the time, it will probably happen tonight, that somebody comes up to me after the reading and says, I absolutely loved your book. Loved it. But did there have to be so much? And then they'll say, bad language or sex or the politics about the Middle East. And um, there did not have to be. Nobody ever said that to me after my first or second book. But this book is a little different. And we can talk about later why. But I think that I, was, I wanted to and I was able to, because I was older, to approach a kind of, a different kind of honesty that got me closer to life. So one kind of honesty is to be honest about where you feel at home. And it's a very hard to think on, thing to be honest about. Um, I was discussing this with a friend actually just earlier today um, via email who was having some problems with her father and her father's critique of how she was a parent of her child. And it was just very troubling to her. And um, 
I said to her, it's so hard to strike the right distance from one's parents because there probably isn't any right distance. Every distance is either a little bit too far or a little bit too close, and so you're just constantly correcting, almost like a boat, you know, tacking back and forth. Um, so it's hard to be honest about where you feel at home, both because it risks incredible offense and it risks you feeling homeless. And in terms of risking incredible offense, it's hard in a novel to talk about what it's like to be a child or to be a spouse or to be a parent, not because I'm afraid that anyone in the world is gonna be upset. This just never happened to me when I write, ever. Not with this book, not with any other book. But because it might um, be upsetting to me to have to, in an honest way, explore what those relationships are actually like to me, as opposed to the way that I like to think about them or present them to other people, which really has more to do with appearances than reality. And it's also hard to think about home in a political way, especially if you're Jewish, because the word Israel is itself a controversial word in the world in which we now live. Um, I can't imagine any statement about Israel that didn't inspire a certain amount, a certain amount of, like at least sensitivity. You know, people's like hackles get up. I don't know if that if it's, if that's a word that has made it to Sweden, but it's like when a dog gets nervous and the hair on its back starts to stand up. That's what happens when the word Israel is used. And it happens, I, haven't, I have yet to experience a context in which it doesn't happen. It happens when I'm speaking to an audience that is primarily not Jewish. It happens when I'm speaking to an audience that's primarily Jewish. There's, as I said to my, my friend, just to return to that, she, she was saying to me, you know, God, my daughter's so fucking great, I love my daughter. And I said, I, I'm sure that that's true, and I know for a fact that she's great, but just be a little bit wary of moving toward these binaries. Like, yeah, your daughter's wonderful, you love her. Your daughter's also sometimes annoying because she's a kid, and you're entitled to feel that too. Like, the truth is in the complexity, not in one of the extreme reactions. Mm. Um, Israel provokes such binary responses. Like you're with us or you're against us. It's an apartheid state or it's the only real democracy in the region, you know. And the truth, as with a parent-child relationship, is very, very complicated and very ambiguous. And um, but you risk something when you enter into that ambiguity. You risk nothing if you just steer clear of it, which is also possible. Yeah, but I think Tamir, the cousin, he, he's pretty black or white. He's, are you with us or against us? And, and the uh, father of Jacob, uh, Irving, he's also like that. He's, he thinks yes or no, or with us, against us. But Jacob wants to feel at home in Israel, but I don't know if he does. Well, I think both of the characters you mentioned, I should describe what the book is. Yeah, sure. Okay. So, the, the book is about a family, the Block family. There's a husband and wife, Jacob and Julia. And they have three kids. And their oldest son, Sam, is about to have his bar mitzvah. And so family from all over the world is just beginning to descend on Washington, D.C. to celebrate together. And um, the first to arrive are these Israeli cousins, Tamir, who you mentioned. While everyone is gathering, there are these subsequent 
crises. The first one is a cell phone that's discovered that reveals an affair that it seems like Jacob's been having. And the second is the earthquake that we had talked about. So both Tamir and Irv are rhetorically very binary, but emotionally they're very complicated. And when they are, when they are pushed into the situation of having to act, not just talk, but act, they start to change and I think surprise us. You know, it's like a lot of the characters who seem resolute turn out to be very nuanced. And some of the characters like Jacob, who seems very nuanced, ends up being not exactly resolute, but much easier to pin down. He, he's in his early 40s, Jacob, and he, he writes for a TV show. And he also has a, like a secret project where he, he wants to develop a new TV show based on his own family. And what he does there is uh, he writes the scripts, but he, more than so, he, he writes a, a Bible about the script, on how to read the script, how to act the script. And this Bible seems like an archive of the characters, who they are, what they feel, how they look, what they dream about, etc. And there's so much material that doesn't go into the TV series for him. So I was wondering, do you keep a Bible when you write where you have like an archive of Julia or Jacob or whatever? So the Bible, Bible is actually like a, a term in TV writing for a document that you create. So when most people make a TV show, they write the first episode, which is called a pilot, and then they try to sell it to HBO or Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or every, every single place makes a TV show now um, in order to prove that you have um, thought through the arc of the show and where it might go and you're not gonna run out of material, you also give them a Bible which, can, which says like, here's where I'm imagining things will go, here's some other information that might be useful in visualizing the project. But Jacob, Jacob's the kind of guy who loves the extrapolations even more than he loves what they're referring to. Like when he was in high school, he created a band, or the idea of a band. They never actually played music. And he would make like, design t-shirts for the band. and. Um, he would create a tour schedule for the way, where the band would play. Um, it's so funny, just the other day when I was in Gothenburg, somebody said, you know, you mentioned Stockholm two or three times in your book. Really, that's surprising, where? Well, one of the times was in the tour schedule for the band <laughs> that Jacob never actually formed. Um, and there's also some beds that are bought from Sweden, right, or something. And like there's that. some beds that are bought yeah. from Sweden, and IKEA is practically a character in the book. Yeah. Um, but uh, so he's the kind of person who sort of indulges all of the fantasies and the layers of fantasy, and the further the layer out, I don't know, the more he seems to want to be immersed in it. Um, so I don't, I don't have something like that where I literally like, have wider and wider circles of information. But what I do have is just a ton of writing that I don't use. I write you know, multiples of what I use and, um, and I save it. And 
And sometimes I then use it later in a different form. So it's funny you should mention the Bible. The Bible, I wrote parts of the Bible for this book while I was writing my first book. Everything is illuminated. I didn't know who Jacob and Julia were. I didn't know what this family was going to be. I didn't know anything about this world. But I did know that I liked the form of somebody explaining, sort of like somebody creating a kind of like encyclopedia of a family life or explaining to somebody else how characters in a family interact. And so I just had it. And I would work on it occasionally. I would think maybe this is a story. Maybe it's, I didn't know what it was. Um, So I don't really work on discrete projects. I I just kind of work and I see where things want to go. There's um, a nice story about Jackson Pollock, the painter, who, when he was living out in the Hamptons, would unroll these huge swaths of canvas, like much bigger than the stage. And, you know, he'd do his thing, drip all over them. And then when, they, when it was dry, he would walk on the canvas and say, this is a good four by six painting. I'm cut that out. Here's a good 11 by 12 painting. Let's cut that one out and frame it. Um, and there's something a little bit, a little tiny bit like that in the way that I write in mm. the sense that I'm not so worried about working on a project because I know that my brain is working on a project. I don't need to have, my subconscious is working on a project. I don't need to have my conscious mind like overly determine what the project is. If I'm thinking things over a period of time, it's because I'm interested in them. Like it goes without saying. And yes, of course it's true that like uh, 17th century romance is not the same thing as a 23rd century work of science fiction is not the same thing as you know, um, a nonfiction investigation of factory farming. Those are all different. But they're not that different, you know? And um, it all sprouts from the same person, and there's a reason that it does. And I'm interested in those reasons. And I think that those reasons and trying to figure it out leads you to a much better place than trying to have good ideas and trying to execute them, mm-hmm. you know? But th- this was also, or this wasn't, but you were involved in a HBO TV show called All Talk. And this novel, uh, you based on some of the stuff that you were supposed to use for that TV show, right? I did. And uh, because the New York Times critic uh, picked up your dialogue and said that you have a very crisp, very sparkling and lively dialogue. He, I think he, uh, let me see, it's so crisp you can imagine him writing for the stage, it says about your dialogue in there. And it, it actually is. I think uh, a lot of these material in the novel could be transformed into a stage play or or a TV show, or whatever. But is, is that the reason, you think, that you were involved in this TV series? Or is it that you like writing dialogue? Um, I, I don't know why. I mean, I, I got involved with the TV show just because somebody asked, really. And I, I, it's, un, the older I get, the more, like evidence of this I have, and I'm still surprised by it. If you just ask people, they almost always say yes. Like, 
pretty much whatever, you know. If you, anything, just anything. If you go to a, buy a taco in some stupid place on the corner, how much is it? Six dollars. Did you take five? Sure. Like, hey, uh, somebody said to me once, do you want to write a libretto for the German state operas? Oh, sure. Like, I think that, I don't know why it is, but it's true. And a lot of people that we think of as being extremely persuasive are good at convincing people of things. A lot of people who we think of as just being powerful in the world, they're just people who ask. You know, because most of us, like me, actually, hate to ask. It makes me extremely uncomfortable. I do it as little as humanly possible. But um, when people ask things of me, I very often say yes, which is, which is not to suggest that anybody should ask anything of me <laughs> after the reading, unless it's, unless it's a great thing. Um, so somebody had asked, and I said, sure, okay, I'll give it a shot, why not? It was, it was somebody that I really respected. And then I worked on it for like two years, three years. And then it was green lit. We had actors ready to go. We were going to shoot it. And I was in a tiny um, seaside town in Denmark, actually spending about a month there. And I just like, I often, travel is a really wonderful thing because you're, you have distance. You can see a little bit better. My kids... I have two. So many of their developmental milestones happened when traveling. Like the first steps in Germany, the first word in Italy. The first, maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't think it is. I think being jarred from your like, regular state of being kind of jars everything and asks something special of you. And so I was in this little town, and I just thought, I don't want to do this. And I've probably known it for a while, but I, I now can't deny it anymore. I don't want to do this. It's not because I didn't like the material. I really loved the material. I just didn't want to have that as my life. Like, I didn't want to collaborate with lots of people every day. I like a little bit of collaboration, but I don't want to live a life of collaboration. I, a professional life of collaboration. Mm. <laughs> um, although probably personal, too. Um, I don't want to talk to like agents and directors and actors all the time and like I don't want to have to be on a set all day and I definitely don't want deadlines. That was actually one of the things that really stuck in me. Like I don't want to have to produce at regular intervals. I just don't. I won't do it well. And so then that project ended and I was able to take some of the material and bring it into this. I didn't take the dialogue and bring it into this, but I did take this kind of newfound love for dialogue and bring it into this. And I really did love it. I, I had a lot of, I took a lot of pleasure in writing those conversations, particularly the really heated conversations, the one that happened quite fast. There are a lot of, there can be spans in the book of several pages where there's no more he said, she said, she rose from the chair and screamed. He, you know, turned off the tap and exclaimed. But it's just pure dialogue. And I know that people occasionally don't know who's speaking. I know that I occasionally don't know who's speaking. I had to go back yeah. to, to when see I, who, There are who times when I was writing in the book and I had to make a little mark by each one. Mm -hmm. 
so that I would end it on the right one. So that I could say like, she said, you know, grabbing the tampons or whatever. Mm. Um, so, but I don't care because that's not the point. The point isn't for me to have these, well, I would say two things. One, it's not to have these incredibly well-delineated characters who, you're, who you know so precisely. The point is to create a kind of atmosphere or experience for the writer when at a certain point, even the character's individuality can fall away and you're left with like the theme, the experience, but also these kinds of heated conversations I'm describing happen always in the book between husband and wife or father or mother and child, parent and child. And there's something about those relationships where first of all, the two people begin to sound like each other as time passes and their responses are in response to entire histories in addition to the last thing that was said. But also, the conversation between a husband and wife is not only a conversation between two individuals, it is also a conversation had by one couple, you know? And I wanted that to be the feeling. So when I was writing those scenes, I, I, I really enjoyed that a lot. I don't always enjoy writing, but I enjoyed that. Do you, do you read out loud when you do dialogue? I kind of like mumble out loud. I don't, I'm just not the kind of person who could read out loud to, when I'm alone. You know, if I have to in front of people, I can. But I can't do it alone. It's just too, maybe if I were, maybe let's put it this way. Let's say there were, North Korea did decide to nuclear, send a nuclear bomb to New York and there was a siren and everybody evacuated the city, except for me, <laughs> then in that situation I could imagine reading out loud <laughs> because I would know there's absolutely no chance of being overheard and I guess that's what my fear is, being overheard. Okay. As to why that's my fear, that's a completely different story. But um, I kind of mumble it to myself. I do like to hear it just a little bit and I take some yeah, pleasure in that. So I'm, so I'm going to ask you something now, because you will say yes. <laughs> uh, could you read a section from the book? I guess I could, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps the How to Play Home, since we spoke about the Bible? Yeah, sure. So we had discussed this in advance. This is a, um, a tiny section called How to Play Home. And um, Jacob reads this child's version of the Odyssey to each of his kids and it's a really like, just as a deep experience for all of them. Um, there's a line that comes up. There's a moment when the Cyclops says, no one tried to kill me, no one blinded me because Odysseus plays a trick on him. When, when the Cyclops asked, who did this to me? Odysseus says, no one. And the Cyclops takes that to be his name. Um, and I only mention that because it comes up in a little bit. I happen to have read this version of the Odyssey to my kids, and it really was like such a wonderful experience. And you know, we would know when the end is approaching. And you know, when there are, has anybody ever been to Savannah, the city in the United States? It's a really beautiful city, mm -hmm. and it has this unusual property where the tops of many of the buildings are incredibly ornate, really ornate and gorgeous, even though the bottom floors are quite plain. And I asked a tour guide. Why is that? What's the story with that? And she said, well, there are municipal buildings, there are city buildings, and the workers would be hired 
you know, by the, by the hour. And when they would get to the end, toward the end of a building, if there wasn't another building to work on, they would need that building to last, like as long as it could. And so buildings would start to get better and better and better toward the end because they had to be working on something. It's a little bit like how, like at the end of life, you know, people start like, just valuing life so much more and like being so much more generous and remembering so many more things and just taking advantage of what they suddenly realize is a finite resource, time. So when we read the Odyssey, you know, we would read like 30 pages a night and then 20 pages a night. And toward the end, we would read like a paragraph a night because it was just so good. And we just we didn't want anything but for it to end, even though Odysseus really wants it to end. Mm, you know, so for sure, he wants to come home. <laughs> a, little, a little tension between our desires. In fact, this is what I'm reading here. I haven't looked at this in a long time. But So the completion of Tales from the Odyssey left Max bereft. Max was their middle child. Why, he asked, spinning to face his pillow. Why did it have to end? I rubbed his back and told him, well, you wouldn't want Odysseus wandering forever, would you? Well, then why did he have to leave home at all? The next morning, I took him to the farmer's market with the hope of finding some consolation in baked goods. Every other Sunday, a mobile pet rescue stationed itself by the main entrance, and we'd often stop and admire the animals. Max was drawn that morning to a golden retriever named Stan, We'd never spoken about getting a dog, and I certainly hadn't intended to get a dog, and I don't even know if he wanted that particular dog, but I told him, if he would like to take Stan home, we can. Everyone but me bounded into the house. Julia was furious, but didn't show it until we were alone at the top of the stairs. She said, again, you've put me in the position of either having to go along with a bad idea or be the bad guy. Downstairs, the boys were calling, Stan, here, come, Stan, come now. I had asked the woman running the pet rescue how he got the name Stan. It struck me as a kind of odd choice for a dog. She said the dogs were given retired names of Atlantic storms. <laughs> With so many dogs moving through the facility, it just made things easy to use a list. Sorry, I said, a retired name of what? Well, you know how storms get names? There's something like a hundred that are cycled through, but if a storm is especially costly or deadly, they retire the name to be sensitive. So there'll never be another Sandy. Just as I thought, there will never be another Isaac. That was his grandfather who died. We don't know the name of my grandfather's grandfather. When my grandfather came to America, he changed his name from Blumenberg to Block. My father was the first person in our family to have an English name and a Hebrew name. When I became a writer, I experimented with different versions of my name, various use of initials, the insertion of my middle name, pseudonyms. The farther we got from Europe, the more identities we had to choose between. No, no one tried to kill me. No one blinded me, the Cyclops said. It was Max's idea to rename Stan. Rename Stan. I said it might confuse him. And Max said, but we need to make him ours. Thank you. (laughs) 
they make him ours uh, or theirs by naming him Argos. And uh, that is also a name from the Odyssey. Um, I read Eating Animals. I suppose a lot of you guys have read that book as well. And you describe there that you adopted a dog on your own, just like Jacob does here. And you still have a dog called Dash, I think, if I'm Yeah, that correct. dog that you mentioned, the first dog was George, yeah. who um, I actually put down about two weeks ago, three weeks oh, ago. Oh, I'm yeah. sad to hear. Yeah, but you know, it was, it was okay. It was like, you know how sometimes something is, like, it's not only happy things that are perfect. You know, sometimes tragic things are perfect too. There's something perfect about it. It was unquestionably, unquestionably the right time. Any longer would have been really cruel, actually. And um, the whole thing proceeded in a way that was as it should be. You know, you can't, living forever is not a choice, presently, anyway. Um, it was definitely not gonna be a choice for George. And so, if you take that as their starting point, then what are the possible ends? And this was a, a kind of perfect end. One very unusual thing though, is I got back her, you can't bury a dog in America. It's just an odd thing, you have to have them cremated. Um, and when they sent me back her ashes, I had got a box the size of like, you know, the book, the height of my book maybe. And in it was a huge bag of her, she was a big dog, a huge bag of her ashes. And on top of that was a Ziploc bag with all of this metal hardware, screws and little brackets and stuff, because she had had her two hips replaced mm. at one point, and they just didn't burn off. And it was such a strange, strange thing. First of all, I felt like, well, the vet didn't rip me off after all, because I had wondered, <laughs> you know, who knows, maybe they don't actually replace the hips, they just tell you they do. So that, that felt good. <laughs> but also the, the, the idea of like the thing in us that is not, burned away, you know, the thing that is irreducible, like the center. There's actually a word for it in Hebrew, luz, L-U-Z, which describes the bone at the base of the neck, which apparently is like the part of the body that survives the longest once buried. But um, it's an interesting thing to think about. In any case, we, we have a dog, an, a, a quite a bit smaller dog whose ashes would probably fit in my mouth if I were to put them there a, for a some reason. <laughs> yeah. um, very small dog, very cute dog, good dog. Mm. I, I once did an interview with uh, the Swiss uh, German author Monique Schwitter and he said, uh, she said that uh, it was totally necessary for her to have a dog while writing because the dog took care of checking the world around. So she, the dog would say if the mailman came on the stairs or if something needed attention and so she could just dive into her text. Does Dash or your older dog mean that to you? Are they with you? I or? find that really weird to be yeah. honest. I mean, <laughs> how much world around is there and how much, how talented is this dog, you know? I don't know. If you told me my dog could bake a souffle and like answer <laughs> crappy email, then we make a coffee would be great. Um, my dog demands more attention than relieves. You know, I have to walk my dog. The mailman in America comes once a day. Um, but is that good to take the walks? 
Do you reflect upon your? It doesn't riding? feel great at the time. I mean, it's it's sometimes nice. Yeah. Also, my dog happens to absolutely love the chair that I write in, and so there's this like little competition every morning. And I don't find that my dog facilitates work in any way whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> I I do find that my dog. I mean, without a doubt, brings out some part of my humanity that wouldn't come out otherwise. And what I write about at the end of the book is about distances between beings. But the book is so, I mean, we talk, it's the theme of divorce, like a distance, a separation. And any two people, no matter how close they are, there's a distance between them because they're not the same person. And there's also the distances of having non-overlapping psychologies, the distance of language and the way that language is only an approximation of what you're trying to convey, the distances of moods, the distance of embarrassment or shame. You can't close the distance and it's a mistake to try, actually. It's a good idea to appreciate the distance and to try to see it as an, a virtue rather than a deficiency. But there's different distances between different people at different times and between all beings, and there's a really interesting distance between humans and dogs, you know, which sometimes can feel so unbelievably and unexpectedly small, and a moment later can feel so profoundly large. You know, I always used to say of George, I would alternate between being in awe of how smart she was and in awe of how dumb she was. <laughs> I don't mean dumb in a disparaging way, I just mean non-human, that's really what I mean. And um, the challenge of these characters and the challenge I think probably for all of us is to um, have a distance that's good and not a distance that's bad. And I don't know if that's the result of work, you know, forcing oneself to see things a certain way or if it's the result of the, na the quality of the distance itself. But, but the distance, I mean, divorce sounds very much like a separation, it is. And, and, but it, in this book, it's actually also, I kept wondering, are they going to divorce or are they going to stay together? Because they, they talk about it a lot. They even rehearse what they, how they shall tell the kids. And during these rehearsals, they shift positions and say, am I me now or am I you? So mm -hmm. they, they try like a, like a theater group or something like that. Yeah. So they keep a closeness. And I think what I could have mentioned at the beginning about what this book contains, it also contains uh, rituals. Rituals seem very important, both on the bigger scale, like religious rituals, also for a country and for the family, and especially for the husband and wife, I think. And they keep their rituals, so to speak, even after they're divorced. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? I don't know exactly. I, I'm not disagreeing, I just don't exactly know. I mm. mean, there's so many different kinds of rituals, you know? So many kinds, and most of them aren't things we even recognize as rituals, and they're not, I don't know if, if you know, rituals don't have to be deliberate or intentional, like the rooster crows at the crack of dawn, not because it chooses to, but because it does, because that's what a rooster does. Mm. And 
so many of the things that we do, or we do because they're what we do. And that's true of individuals and it's true of relationships. And sometimes I think we maybe overestimate how much we can change our rituals. And of course, a lot of times we underestimate. And something that I give a, a whole lot of thought to now as a dad, like what are the occasions to, not to make something regularized, not ritualistic just in the sense of like, we always do it this way at this time, but in the sense of overlaying meaning, you know? Um, I remember being really entranced when I was a kid by these books we had of the human anatomy, where it would start with, there's like a photograph of, I don't know, the organs, or the, maybe it was just the empty body cavity, and then you would overlay a transparency that had like the organs, and then you would overlay another transparency that had an, the second layer of organs, and then another one that had um, muscle, and then another one that had bone, and then another one that had tissue, and another one that had skin. And I just, I loved that. I loved it. And I loved it in a way that doesn't necessarily require any explanation, but stuck with me and became one of those odd metaphors in life. You know, I don't know if you have these, these things that recur without your exactly knowing why or what they mean. There's a beautiful um, poem, one of my favorite poems, um, which is something, goes something like this, it's very short, but it's something like a screwdriver was made to turn screws, so when we use it to pry open a can of paint, to get the lid off of a can of paint, we're committing a metaphor. And as people, we don't know what we were made to do, so we spend almost all of our lives committing metaphors. Um, so that kind of like layering has always felt um, has always felt important and, and metaphorical to me. And creating rituals just creates layers. So uh, you have a normal week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If we didn't name the days of the week, right, then it would be very hard to know where we were in the week. We wouldn't anticipate the end of the week because there wouldn't really be an end of the week if we didn't break it up in time. So simply naming the days is ritualizes a week. Hmm. And lo and behold, we get anxious on Sunday night and we get really excited <laughs> on Friday afternoon and we feel relaxed on Saturday morning. Um, there are further ways to ritualize a week. Like a Jewish way is to have Shabbat on Friday night and on Saturday. And um, it creates another layer of meaning and appreciation and sometimes it can be kind of arbitrary. Like um, the characters in this book on Friday nights, they don't really practice Shabbat. They're not religiously observant. But they have this ritual on Friday night where they will, after the meal, close their eyes and walk around the house for like five minutes, ten minutes, all of them with their eyes closed. And it's kind of fun. It's kind of neat. It makes them appreciate their home again because they come into like a deeper kind of contact with it. It makes them appreciate having eyesight when they open their eyes again. In a way, none of that, you can explain it that way, but it's not really the point. The point is it just makes something else in life. It creates another layer of meaning on top of the Friday. And it's memorable. 
and it fills life out. You know, if you don't have, if you don't ritualize things and if you don't create context for things, then before you know it, you're 80 years old and just nothing really happened exactly. You know, it's like I said, it's when I travel often that I have this like perspective or when I travel that my kids would make these developmental leaps. It's because travel is adding a layer of meaning onto life. It's not just spending days, it's spending days in Sweden or it's spending days in Spain or wherever. And when I think back over my previous 10 years, the first things I'll remember is time when I was away. You know, I'll remember the things that were different. So maybe that's it, like ritualizing as making something different, as just separating things out. That's how you make things special. And that's the, like the good kind of divorce, you know? Like it is unlike that, it is like this. And there's so many opportunities to do so. It just requires awareness of them and then the energy to do it because it's not, it doesn't come for free, you know, to make a Shabbat dinner if that's what you want to do or to make a Sunday brunch if that's what you want to do. You have to do it. Nobody just brings it to you. Um, and more often than not, it's just easier not to. Like, why do that? It was a long week. I really want to get into that. Like, I'll just get the simple thing. I'll order my books on Amazon instead of going, walking down the street to the local bookstore, which ritualizes, like, hmm. book purchasing. You know, I can order my groceries if I want. I can watch a movie on Netflix rather than walking to the movie theater where it smells a certain way and the seats feel a certain way and you get popcorn because that's what you do when you go to a movie. And all these layers of ritual that contribute meaning and, um, and they're harder and they're more expensive. And we live in a world in which not only is ritual not appreciated, but its opposite is the ultimate value, which is just expediency. Make everything as easy as humanly possible. If you could do everything without having to leave a chair, that would be, that's what Apple is working toward. That's what, <laughs> it's not a joke. That's what Google is working toward. That's what Facebook is working toward. They're working toward taking more of your time in a chair because they get paid more when you are in a chair. And they're for profit companies. They're not the church. I mean, I guess the, maybe the church is for profit as well, but they're trying to take money from advertisers at the expense of your time. And it's a very hard thing to resist because it, I mean, I have a very, very hard time resisting it. Um, I am as bad as anybody in this room when it comes to all the things I just described, but I long to resist it because I have never once felt good like ordering something online or not good for more than the 30 seconds of like the little pleasure of knowing something's coming. It just doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't mm. at all. It certainly is nothing I'm going to be remembering on my deathbed. You know, or when I look back over the last 10 years, I don't think like, remember when I did that click and buy thing when I got this? The online purchase? Sheets for 40 cents? Yeah. Oh. No, I think about the things that required effort and were harder and ritualized. But one ritual that uh, I suppose uh, every adult Jewish male remembers is the bar mitzvah. That's and not what I thought you were going to say. Not? <laughs> okay. What, what did you think? Circumcision. Mm. But Sam, is, is, he doesn't want the bar mitzvah. Uh, he doesn't, no. And I see Sam as somehow like the, the hidden main character of the book. 
he knows before the parents that they're going to divorce, right? So could you, I, th I think that's in the other part that we yep. talked about that you could read, so. Yeah, there are a lot of sort of hidden main characters in the book, you know? Yeah. I think Julia, she's hardly hidden, but she's a kind of like slightly less visible main character. Even Deborah, the grandmother, mm. often feels that way to me. Okay, Sam knew that everything would collapse. He just didn't know exactly how or when. His parents were gonna get divorced and ultimately hate each other and spread destruction like that Japanese reactor. That much was clear, if not to them. He tried not to notice their lives, but it was impossible to ignore how often his dad fell asleep in front of the absence of news. How often his mom retreated into pruning the trees of her architectural models. How his dad started serving dessert every night. How his mom told Argus she needed space whenever he licked her. How devoted his mom had become to the travel section. How his dad's search history was all real estate sites. How his mom would put Benji on her lap whenever his dad was in the room. The violence with which his dad began to hate spoiled athletes who don't even try. How his mom gave $3,000 to the fall National Public Radio Drive. How his dad bought a Vespa in retaliation. The end of appetizers in restaurants, the end of the third bedtime story for Benji, the end of eye contact. There? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. yeah, great. So it is Sam who, who he knows this about his parents before they do, it seems, uh, or he senses that something is very wrong. And he tells his younger brothers about this. He also has a friend uh, named Billy, and she reads her parents' parenting books just to be able to understand the parents. <laughs> Are the kids wiser in this book than the adults, do you think? Well, I mean, they're wiser in their own kid ways. Um, there's a, th a sort of theme that runs through the book. I think a couple chapters are even named it. Um, what do our children know? And that is a question, and it's a question that actually can't be answered by the children themselves. Like, kids know a lot of things that they're not aware of knowing. They also don't know a lot of things that they believe they know. Um, but... I mean, just a question of knowledge across characters, you know. Jacob wonders what Julia knows. Julia wonders what Jacob knows. They wonder what Isaac is thinking. Isaac wonders why nobody's thinking about him. Um, but no, children are not wiser than adults. Children are often accidentally wiser than adults in the same way that children accidentally make Picassos and Van Goghs. Um, but, you know, real wisdom just like real artistic talent is something that's like proven over time and done intentionally. So, you know, kids say the most beautiful things, but they're a little bit like the screwdriver used to pry open a can of paint. Like it's not, they're not using it toward the purpose that they believe that they are. It's a kind of accidental metaphor. Um, in this case, the children really are quite intelligent and they have a gift for being kind of either in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time in terms of overhearing things or witnessing things or having exposure to what is going on between their parents. Um, 
I think Jacob and Julia make a mistake that a lot of parents do, which is they hurt their children out of love. You know, they're really good people and they really love their children and they're not, they're not negligent parents. They're not in any way absent. They're very thoughtful and give a lot of consideration to um, what the best way to raise their kids is. But that consideration can sometimes lead to um, too much love. You know, the efforts to, to try to protect them, to not say the thing that will be painful, takes them away from a truth that kind of everybody in the room already knows to whatever extent they are capable of knowing it. And simply delivering a bit of pain in the moment would probably spare um, a lot of pain that happens over time. There's one section, I think it's Sam, or is it Max? You have to correct me now. But I think it's Sam who, who hurts his hand, hurts his fingers. Yeah. And Julia says, I am here for you, which is a reference to the title, I suppose, Here I Am. And, and that comes from, from the Bible, right? Genesis. So, and, and she says, I'm, I'm here, I'm present as a mother for you in this moment. But tell me, wh why did you pick the title, Here I Am? Because that has a lot of meanings in the book as well. So here I am um, refers to the, one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, which is when the binding of Isaac and it begins, and then Jacob put Abraham, and, and then God put Abraham to the test. He said, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. Hineni, it's a word. And then God said, I need you to sacrifice your beloved son. And so when people talk about the, the test, they usually mean the sacrifice. He's testing to see if Abraham will sacrifice his son. But just a close reading of it, could go another way, you know, and then God put Abraham to the test. He said, Abraham, as if that were the test. You know, I'm asking for you. What will you do? When God asks for Adam, when he notices that the fruit has been eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam hides from him. Um, there are plenty of ways to respond without saying, here I am. And here I am is the kind of ultimate response of, presence. It's not like I need five minutes. It's not what do you need. It's not deflected. It's just here, here, in front of you, I, all of me, am in, in a totality. And then a few sentences later when Abraham is leading Isaac up the mountain for the sacrifice and Isaac senses something is strange is going on. And he says, my father, and Abraham says to him, here I am, with the same kind of totality of presence, and you just can't be both of those things. You can't be here I am for a God who wants you to kill your son while being here I am for the son who doesn't want to be killed. And nobody in this room has experienced a situation like that, but everybody has experienced a situation sort of like that, you know, just in a modern and maybe muted way, um, like a paradox, uh, being pulled at by, from two different directions, having two identities that aren't fully compatible, or three or a hundred identities that aren't fully compatible, like um, 
people often feel the tension between being a parent and a spouse. Like it's just really hard to be a good spouse while being a good parent. It's very hard to be a good parent while being a good professional. It's very hard for some people to be a good Jew or Christian or Muslim while also being a good secular citizen. Um, it can be very hard. You can imagine all of the different kinds of divisions, divorces that I'm talking about. Um, but most of the time it's fine. It's not that big a deal. You just make compromises and you figure it out. You know, Like I came to Sweden. I'm not with my kids right now. But now I'm a writer and that's I'm putting the emphasis here because it's just simply not a big deal to be away for a couple of days. I made this trip kind of short so I can be back because then I'll be a dad and that's good too because I don't have to do a hundred readings. I can do just a couple. Um, but sometimes something happens that demands um, like an ultimate statement of identity. Not I'm borrowing from this to give to that but I'm choosing this over that. So with the example of like writing and parenting, it's not impossible to imagine writing a book one day, my kids reading it and saying, don't publish this. Like, I don't want you to publish this. This is about me. I don't like it. And then I would have to make an ultimate decision, which would be frankly tricky. Mm. If I believed in the book and believed it was written from a good place and believed that I was not hurting anybody. Um, in this novel, Here I Am, is organized around these two crises that force Jacob to say where he actually is. He's used to being kind of in the marriage, kind of out of the marriage, and everybody knows what that's like. It doesn't mean you're cheating on your spouse. It means like you're not totally there. Like you're pretty much there, but you're not totally there. Um, I don't have to be able to describe it probably for that to be a known and familiar feeling. And when, when the affair is discovered, then he has to make a decision. I am going to be in this or out of it. And when the war with Israel happens and the prime minister asks Jews to come there, he's used to sort of having a very fragmented identity vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Like if he's with all of his Jewish friends and someone talks about, oh my, I just came back from Israel, it was so great. He'd be like, what, it's an apartheid state. How can you go to Israel these days? But if he's at a cocktail party with a bunch of non-Jews and somebody says, did you hear about what's going on in Jericho? He'd be like, well, come on, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's more complicated than that. Israel's this tiny sliver of a democracy surrounded by these totally lunatic enemies. You know? So it, his opinions, his identity can change so radically depending on his context. But now he's being asked to actually claim an identity. And he's really not ready to. You know, the last words of the book are, I'm ready. And they are with reference to a very specific question in a completely different context. But they resonate because I feel like that's what we see Jacob preparing for, is the readiness to say, okay, this is who I am. Mm. You described the, this novel in an interview with Washington Post. Uh, or you said, I consider this my first book. How come you get that feeling? I mean, we, know, we all know it isn't your first book. Um, I don't know exactly. I think maybe I would say that about every book I ever write, <laughs> you know, okay. because 
in a certain way, it's true. Like, you know, if, if you went to Portugal when you were two months old, and I would at, and, and haven't been back since, and I were to say to you, have you been to Portugal? You'd probably say something like, technically I have, but not really, right? Mm. Like, I haven't been to Portugal. Some earlier version of myself was in Portugal, but I feel so much distance from that earlier self that it's kind of the true answer is to say, this is my first time in Portugal. Is that about right? Mm -hmm. So that's what it's like with my books, you know. I did write those books, but I was really different. I really was, and I feel differently when I look at them. I don't really recognize, I don't remember too much about the process of writing them. I don't feel all that connected to them, aesthetically or emotionally. I'm really proud of them. I don't mean to suggest otherwise. I'm really glad I wrote them. I just recognize that I didn't write them. You know, like a, an earlier version of myself mm. wrote them. Um, I've always had this little voice in my ear when I write telling me this is gonna be your last book. And I don't mean it that in the sense of I'm gonna die soon, I don't mean it in the sense that I won't write another book, but in that spirit of like, this is me, this is who I am now, and if I want to say something, if I want to say something, I have to say it now, because the next book I write will be written by somebody else with different concerns. You know, I don't mean that in a mystical way or anything, it's just, it's just very matter of fact. Um, there's another, though, thing that I probably meant, which is a little different, which is, is special to this particular book, which is that this is the first book, this is the first book that my friends, people I know, have said, have said to me, this one sounds like you, you know? My other books were my creations, but they didn't sound like me. This is the first book that I wrote in the third person. The first two had these very strong guides, like mm. the first is Alex, this Ukrainian, it's this funny way of speaking which is so distinctive and he kind of grabs you and pulls you through on this journey. When people talk to me about everything is illuminated, they say, oh, Alex, um, with my second book, Oscar was a very strong guide with this bizarre sort of way of looking at things and imagining things and when people talk about the book, they say, Oscar, da, 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 da. So this book was written in the third person. And, um, but it's a third person who has a kind of character and sensibility and sense of humor and like rhythm to thought. And it's not exactly me, but I think it's pretty close to me. Or it's much closer than anything else I've ever written. So the bizarre thing is now when people come up to me about when they read the book, they don't say, oh, Alex, da, 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 or, oh, Oscar, da, 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 da. They say, they talk about themselves, you know? I wrote about myself for the first time, not autobiographically, but in the spirit that I was just saying, and for the first time I've had readers telling me about themselves, that that's what they remember from my book. Um, and that's really special. I mean, that, that to me feels, by my standards of, like, success or literary ambition, 
that much more closely approximates it. If a reader would re not remember characters from my book, not remember plot devices, not admire sentence structure, but think about, say this reminded me of me. Great. We're very happy about the first book and the previous ones. So thanks a lot for coming here tonight, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you.